Wardcast episode 148, go! I'm Dylan Vento, and today I'm joined by Janemann Nordhagen, founder of Dimbulb Games. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Dylan. No problem. Uh, how's Santa Fe going? It's great. Uh, I love it here. It is uh, this beautiful so desert cheap. environment. Well, yes. Yeah, so that's that's a big part, right? Like compared to the Bay Area, obviously everything's cheap. Uh, when I, it, it's funny uh, when I moved here, uh, you know, people would ask me, "Oh, why Santa Fe?" And I would say, "Like, oh, well, you know, the cost of living here is so low." And everyone kind of side-eyed me because Santa Fe, as far as New Mexico goes, like Santa Fe is one of the more expensive places you can go, right? Um, but compared to the Bay Area, yeah, it's spectacular here. It's uh, it's it's cheap. It's also beautiful. Uh, it's also got great weather. Uh, fantastic creatures running around. I have rabbits and lizards and things like that in my backyard. Um, yeah, it's really it's a really fantastic place. How deserty is it? I haven't been in the Southwest much, so I can't. I don't really like know Nevada or New Mexico that that well. Yeah, so it's it's very deserty. Like it's like this is the place where uh, the cowboys roamed and things like that. Everything is sagebrush. There's a lot of rock. There's uh, not a lot of trees or anything like that, except in the the river, like right next to the river, basically. Um, so yeah, quite quite deserty. Uh, especially here in Santa Fe, it's like 7,000 feet because we're in the mountains as well as being in a desert. So everything is kind of a little extra dry. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's great. You don't have asthma or anything, do you? Because I feel like that would start it up real quick. No, yeah, it's fantastic. I actually grew up in the mountains uh, in Colorado, though. Um, so I'm used to the high elevation, uh, also the dryness, not quite this dry, but you know, uh, similar, similar sort of thing. I had, I had a rowing coach in high school and he was like, uh, I would say like six, five, but he also like spent a lot of his childhood in the mountains. So he like his lung capacity was ridiculous <laughs> on top of being a very large man. Uh, so he's basically bred for it. Yeah, exactly. That's the way to cheat at all sports is grow up at altitude, uh, train at altitude and then yeah, come down to sea level and just destroy everybody. Yeah. The world is your hyperbaric chamber. <laughs> exactly. So um, we got to talking at the Smithsonian Arcade, which was a pretty cool event. Um, I That was my first time going to it, despite the fact that it's only two hours away from me. It's a far more considerable distance for you. Uh, what did you, you think of that? Oh, it was really, it was really spectacular. Yeah, it was a fun show. Um, I really like anything where I can put the game in front of people who aren't gamers you know don't identify as you know primarily as as being a a game player Uh, although obviously like people were coming to the event to play games so maybe they did you know but but generally i felt like it was much more of a general public kind of event than say your paxes or your e3s or things where you have to like be really into gaming to get into it you know um so that was great and then you know obviously like the the main reason that I came out to show the game and everything is it's a huge honor to be presented in the Smithsonian, you know. I mean, it's not like part of the permanent exhibit, but it still has this this really cool cachet of being um, considered part of American art, uh, which is which is great. You know, I, I like that a lot. And to clarify, the game is Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, because I don't think we said it yet. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a it's a really cool uh 
space and really cool exhibit um when they said it's in the courtyard and then i looked at the forecast it said it might be raining i was like this seems like a bad forethought like why would you put electronics outside then when i went into the building it's like a glass roofed interior courtyard and i was like oh okay this makes sense yeah thank goodness because the night before that like dc got hit by just this apocalyptic storm i was actually driving in through it and it was miserable it was like a hurricane or something i don't know i'm not from the east coast so i don't know maybe that's normal there but it was it was pretty rough uh virginia's been getting a lot of rain the past uh couple couple weeks um it, it'll, it'll be nice and sunny in the morning and then by the afternoon it's it's like torrential basically um virginia's weird i mean i bet anywhere anywhere anyone's from can be like this but like we can get all types of weather at any time of the year like there's no i mean we have seasons but our seasons occur within the span of a week and then they just cycle through them um so it could be snowing on monday and it could be like 75 on friday and it just has real no rhyme or reason to it. And I think it's just the combination of like being kind of smack dab in the center in the United States and then also being on the coast and being affected by the the, the stream or the Gulf Stream. So I, I got lucky then with my uh, apocalyptic storm. I got to see some of what, what that area is really like. Yeah. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah, I had it, especially since, you know, if you were in the Bay Area a couple of years ago, like you guys... Water didn't exist. Right. Yeah. We don't, we don't have seasons out there. It's like, uh, you know, you get it's summer year round, essentially you get 70 to 60 degree days every day. But there's that one week where it's like a hundred degrees and you all freak out because you don't have any AC. Yeah. Yeah. And the day that everyone goes to the beach in January and things like that. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's weird. Yeah. We don't, we, we have relatively regular seasons over here, but uh, what I thought was interesting, and this kind of ties into where the water tastes like wine, um, I, it seemed, so how often do you take a plane? Because, I mean, <laughs> obviously you drove to uh, D.C. from Santa Fe, and then you drove back, and when we were talking at the Smithsonian, you were kind of like talking about how these cross-country trips that you take kind of inspired a lot of like the traversal in where the water tastes like wine, and I was kind of curious, like, did you grow up doing that? Did you kind of discover that as you got older? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of both. Uh, my family was big on road trips when I was a kid. You know, we didn't have the money to fly everyone everywhere uh, on a plane or anything like that. Um, and so we drove around a lot of the places that we went. Uh, drove from Colorado to Southern California uh, to Arizona, you know, a lot of the places nearby, uh, relatively speaking, uh, to like Idaho. I don't know, all kinds of things like that. Um, so, you know, I was, I was doing that. I don't hate flying. Um, I, I enjoy it, uh, a fair amount. It's really good if you want to get somewhere far away or quickly. Um, but yeah, in, in general, uh, especially as I became an adult and started realizing like when I traveled, uh, overseas a bit more and saw what train travel could be like in other places, things like that, I started to gain more of an appreciation of that kind of, that kind of travel where it, it certainly is nowhere near as efficient, but it gives you a greater sense of what you are actually traveling over. Right. Like I, I think that Airplanes are a little bit like teleportation, which is which is amazing, right? Like I'm 100% a fan of teleportation. But essentially, you know, you go to this building that is very much like uh, any other airport anywhere in the world, right? And then you get into a little tube and you 
are asleep or, you know, reading or whatever for some number of hours. And then you pop out the other end and you're somewhere else and that's it, you know, and, uh, you see some things out of the window, but those things are mostly clouds. You know, you don't, you don't see what you're actually traversing. Whereas if you drive or you take a train or something like that, a bus, you know, a boat, um, you actually get a real feel for the type of stuff that you're crossing over, like what it's like to be on this journey. Is it a desert? Is it, are you going over mountains? Are these like terrifying narrow mountain passes that you have to do one car at a time? Like what, what is that like? Is it snowing in some places and, you know, a hundred degrees in other places? Uh, what are the people like that you're, that you're traveling by, you know, all this sort of stuff. And also how long does it take, you know, because flying from, uh, like San Francisco to, to Colorado, you know, it takes a few hours. Uh, if you fly from San Francisco to the East Coast, it takes a few more hours. You know, it's a little bit longer. You can tell it's longer. Um, but if you try and drive from California to Colorado, that's a two-day drive. If you try and drive from California to the East Coast, that's like five days minimum, you know, uh, and that's doing nothing but driving. So you really get a sense of how big this country is or wherever you're traveling uh, is. And I think that's valuable, you know. I think we we lose sight of that sometimes with uh, with airplanes and, and near instantaneous transportation. That's interesting because I, I grew up, doing a decent amount of driving um but it was always on the east coast so we would travel but i would only ever see the same landmarks over and over so like i grew up in uh, southeast virginia and we would go to the outer banks like almost every summer when i was a kid so got very familiar with with that drive and then my father's from new york so we drove to new york sometimes or went down to florida once or twice and it's almost for me that kind of like made me like disappreciated and then when i got into high school i mean not high school um when i got into college and i was still rowing uh we would cram like 12 guys into a van and drive up to like pittsburgh or new jersey over in you know in the span of like you know half a day or whatever um and i think once i finally graduated college i was very much like no, I I want to see more of the world but i want to see it like i want to i want to get there because i didn't fly i didn't fly until i was 19 was the first flight i ever took uh and so i i feel like i i need to get back to appreciating that kind of sense of scale and scope and in traveling via car or something but like doing it on my own terms and not being sardined into like a a minivan with a bunch of people and you know taking it slow it's like hey i'm gonna drive for a couple hours i'm gonna stop and then you know do whatever look at some landmarks and then maybe i'll drive some more that day or maybe i won't but it's cool that you you find all that 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 excitement in doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know that the the cliche about it being about the journey and not the destination sort of thing. You know, that's that's a big part of it uh, for me. Um, and obviously, like like you said, that is a big part of where the water tastes like wine. Right? It's a game that is all about the journey. There is really no destination exactly. It's it's about the wandering and about appreciating that wandering. Right. So was that um, transitioning into where the water tastes like wine? Was that like the the seed of the idea? Was that or was the seed of I- the idea more, more the folklore side? It was actually the traveling. Um, so after uh, after shipping gone home, um, I took about six months and was backpacking around the world, basically not not the whole world, but uh, Europe and Asia and a little bit of Africa anyway. Um, and uh 
during that time, you know, I spent a lot of time on trains. I tried to do that whole trip without airplanes as well, uh, which is is trickier than than you might think. Uh, but um, I spent a lot of time on trains, uh, on buses, and things like that, and meeting fellow travelers, right? And I thought it would be really interesting to try and make a game out of that to, you know, this, this experience of going from place to place and meeting some of the same people as you travel around and hearing their adventures, you know, learning not only what they're doing on this trip, but also eventually like you get to dig into kind of more of the backstory of this person, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was the impetus was, you know, this, this traveling, uh, meeting other people, telling stories. And then it was only after that, that I started to think about like, what other things do I want to, to bring into this? And the big one that I felt like I, I really wanted to make a game about was, um, my love of like American roots music, uh, like bluegrass, folk, jazz, things like that. Um, and you know, if you look at those two things, the Venn diagram of where they overlap is, you know, very much like hobo culture and that that sort right. of uh, yeah. Great Depression era, the the romanticized version of it, right, where you have this freedom of riding the rails, you know, the the hobo life, uh, no no job or connections to hold you down, you just get to explore the country and and see what you want to see, right? Um, but then bringing in obviously the the real reality of that and talking about that period of American history from a very realistic standpoint in some ways, um, while also trying to maintain the, the magical realism, the sort of like folkloric aspects that you get in a, a blues or folk song where, you know, you can be singing about your, your hard times and uh, getting thrown in jail and like that one minute and the next minute you're meeting the devil at the crossroads or whatever, you know, sort of thing, or there's ghosts or any of that sort of stuff can all, can all come out. Um, and so trying to get that, that same feeling of this very grounded time when people are struggling and we're talking about the reality of those struggles, but that you can have these strange, fantastical things intrude upon your life at any point. Right. Yeah. Um, that's especially like a topic that or like a subject or a theme that isn't really addressed much in games. Um, I mean, we focus more on like kind of traditional high or medieval fantasy, less so on like, like you said, Americano or American folklore, which is an interesting uh, kind of aspect of, of storytelling. Um, and also like the musical thing, because I'm a big fan of like talking about people's musical influences, like, you know, whatever bands or whatever they like. Um I'm not that familiar with like, you know, first half of the 20th century, like bluegrass and folklore. I mean, bluegrass and jazz and stuff like, um, obviously I'm, I'm kind of a Bob Dylan fan, so I understand his influences like Woody Guthrie and, and Lead Belly and stuff, but haven't listened to a lot of, of that, but I, I, I understand kind of, kind of the touchstones there, but, um, that's really cool because, uh, that, that kind of makes me think of games like Mafia 3 that's very much about like a specific setting and a specific like musical influence and stuff and where they use like highlights from that era to influence the game. I mean, obviously it's got a lot of credence Clearwater in that, in that game and stuff, but uh, I really like that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really strong voice for games to have, especially these days is to pick a particular place and time and really try to, 
execute on that well to try and bring that that to life. And I think you can say a lot by by doing that, you know. Um, especially probably everywhere in the world, but especially in the U.S., I feel like we're dragging our history behind us everywhere we go sort of thing. And you can say a lot about the way things are right now by looking back at particular periods in history. And I think, you know, Mafia 3 does that, uh, where the Water Test of Wine is explicitly trying to do that, you know, yeah. We, we kind of discussed at uh, the Smithsonian, so like kind of basic premise we kind of touched on, and like obviously it's like rooted in, in folklore and stuff, but the actual mechanics of the game is you are kind of traversing around the continental United States kind of like in a nonlinear fashion and you're going to towns and, and speaking with different people and you're trading stories, right? Do I, do I have that correct? Yep. yep that's right. There's uh you're, you're essentially just wandering the United States, uh, having these little adventures, collecting these stories and, uh, meeting these different characters, the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, tentpole experiences of the game are these, these 16 different, characters that you can meet sit across the fire from and that's where you trade the stories that you've gathered with them to learn about their life and so are those the because you mentioned it in the uh your postmortem about like you know focusing on kind of vignette storytelling is are those 16 characters the 16 like vignettes that are written by separate people or? yeah so actually um there's what we actually call vignettes are the little adventures you know they're they're very short little choose your own, you know, text adventure sort of thing. Um, and there were, uh, let's see about nine people who wrote those. Um, and then there, the 16 different characters, those were each written by a different person as well. Uh, but that was like one writer per character got to, got to write those. Um, so the whole project was basically, you know, bringing together all these, all these different voices in, in different ways. Um, the vignettes are a little more traditional, like game writing sort of thing, because it's a essentially a writer's room and people, you know, take individual assignments and go off and execute on them. And hopefully they all feel somewhat cohesive at the end of the day. Um, but the 16 different characters are, that was sort of the experimental part of the game um, was, can you make a story uh, in a video game that's not, just a single story with one through plot line. Um, but can you make what's essentially a, a collection of short stories uh, where each writer doesn't work with the other writers, but has total control over one character, over deciding who they are, what they say, what their voice is, and making that come alive, right? And And also simultaneously tying that into the themes of the game the world of the game, you know, making it feel like it belongs in this, in this place, in this, in this, you know, world with all these other folks. So, and so like their stories are not the, the folklore stories, kind of the folklore stories are the foundation that they're kind of exchanging and that's building into each character's personal story. Right, exactly. So the folklore stories that are scattered all over the U S those are, made up by our writers mostly like some of them are inspired by you know uh paul bunyan or johnny appleseed or whatever you know uh the jersey devil things like that um but they're all they're all fantastical you know uh and anything can happen in those and the 16 different characters they are they're not real historical people but they're all based on some kind of historical context uh in the united states and this is where like the u.s history really comes into play is um, 
these characters are all very well researched. They're all based on historical fact. They all have things to say that are generally way more on the grounded side of things than on the fantastical side. Even the ones that that like the mythological side comes in on, like uh, you can meet Althea, the blues guitarist, who uh, sold her soul to the devil at the crossroads, you know, sort of thing. Uh, very Robert Johnson inspired, um, but also comes from Memphis Minnie, this uh, amazing um, blues guitarist of, of her age who wrote all these fantastic songs. Um, and, and her story is, yeah, it's about selling her soul to the devil, but uh, the writer Gita Jackson made that kind of a metaphor for existing as a black person in the United States at that time period. The fact that like you don't have any good options. The only deals you can make are bad ones. And when the devil comes along and promises you something, even if you know it's a bad deal that's going to turn out poorly in the past, like that's all you've been offered anyway. That's what all the record contracts have come down to. That's what any deal with a white man has has worked out for you as. So you might as well take this one too, you know? And that becomes an incredibly powerful metaphor, you know, that that and it, it again is centered on much more of this uh serious grounded historical side of things uh than perhaps the the folklore and the rest of the game. I didn't know. I didn't know Gita made a made a story. That's really awesome. That that's also interesting. Like when you mentioned that, like selling their soul to to be a good musician, like that immediately reminded me of like um, Old Brother Where Art Thou. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge Old Brother Where Art Thou fan. I mean, I know there are huge ones out there, but um, I think that's really interesting. Kind of because they have a character in there who's like a very good guitarist, and he's black, and um, he says that he met a man and sold his soul to the devil. Um, so I'm curious about that kind of reoccurring theme coming from musicians of that sort. Yeah. I mean, I think that the original, as far as I'm aware, the original is, is Robert Johnson, who was such a good guitarist that everyone, the legend became that he had to have sold his soul to the devil. Um, and so that's, as far as I know, that's where that comes from among, among blues guitarists anyway. That's pretty cool. It's also interesting, kind of branching off of that, just going to like kind of the the writers and freelancers and contractors that you kind of connected with because um, like we said Gita Jackson um, I know Austin Walker contributed some writing and and a bunch of other amazing people but uh, like how did you go about like finding people to help contribute to the game did you was it more like a um you you knew their work previously and you definitely wanted to work with this person or was it like you wanted to see who was interested in contributing to a folklore American folklore focused game? Yeah, it was a little bit of both, actually. Uh, so the reason that I started looking for different contributors was um, when I sat down to to start this game, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, so if I want to tell the story of America, I need to make it, you know, not just from my experience, I need to talk about, like, you know, the, the, the black experience in America. That's a huge, huge part of our history, obviously. The, uh, the indigenous people, you know, um, immigrants like there's a whole crowd of people whose voices like need to be in any game about america um and you know the first the first idea that i had for a character was was based on this uh biography that i read it was about a uh a southern sharecropper um in alabama and the the rise of the sharecroppers union basically and uh, all this stuff that that happened to him, and uh, I looked at this and I was like, you know what? There's no way I can write this black sharecropper. Um, and from that, I got a 
said, well, okay, well, maybe I can find someone else to write this character. And then I thought, well, what if I found someone else to write all the characters? What if I did that? You know, And that appealed to me not only because um, I'm bringing in all these different voices, which I think is critical in, in games and in media of all sorts, but also because can... I pull this off, you know, can, can we pull this off? Is this something that can work, uh, from a narrative perspective? Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, to actually answer your question, um, what I started with was, was trying to find people connecting with people whose work I really admired, you know, um, people like Gita, like Lee Alexander, um, folks like that, that I knew their stuff. I knew they were amazing writers. Um, some of them hadn't written for games before they had just, you know, been journalists or whatever, but I knew that they, I knew they could write. And so I, I, and I didn't necessarily want this to be written like other games. Anyway, I wanted something that, that felt more like literature. So I approached them and said, Hey, can you, does this sound interesting to me? And because it's a new idea and because I was giving them a ton of freedom, uh, I think it did appeal to a lot of those folks. And, uh, when I started running out of people that I knew that I could persuade to do this, then it became much more reaching out to people whose maybe work I was familiar with, but didn't know personally, uh, people like Austin or whatever. Um, and then also, uh, at some points I had to just put out a call for people to write for this, uh, that I didn't know or wasn't familiar with their work. Um, and so it was a, it was a mix of a lot of that, you know, um, there were, there are people in there who are experienced professional game writers. There are people in there who are experienced writers, but not for games. There are people whose, this was their first writing gig ever, but all of them had really spectacular voices and, you know, impressed me a ton with what they could show. So, yeah. Right. That's, that's really cool. Especially from the aspect of like, you know, this being kind of like, their first project for some of the contributors because um, what I'm thankful for is I feel like kind of narrative design in general is becoming a little bit more respected in games in the past decade, I would say. Um, and it's, it's interesting kind of seeing that kind of cross pollination of like, Hey, here's people on the journalistic side, but sometimes they cross over to doing some narrative design or writing contributions. Like I think of like Kate Gray, you know, is doing work for co-op, but she like contributes to the, kotaku still um and it's it's something that i hold pretty pretty dear and personally because i feel like narrative in games are you know it's one of the big you know reasons why i enjoy games i mean that's a reason why gone home is a big inspiration uh to me but it's it's good to see that not only are you giving kind of established people a chance to like hey here's something kind of out of your you know, nine to five, you're also giving people that like, Hey, do you want to try writing something? Like, do you think you can, you can, you know, take a whack at it, but like, obviously you, you can't show me any prior work, but you want it, you want to try contributing anyways. And I think that's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a big goal for me. I really like, uh, I, I don't know, giving, it sounds, uh, how can I, how can I say this in a way that doesn't sound condescending, but like giving, giving people, uh, I was surprised. Let uh, me tell you. No, no, no. But I'm just, I'm just saying like, you know, I think that one of the things that I can do that's best, uh, you know, as someone who had a fairly successful, uh, previous game, you know, and, and has a bunch of experience in the industry, like how can I help other people 
get to a good point in their own careers, you know, and, and one of those ways is by hiring them and paying them money to do work, you know, and giving them uh, credits on a game that, you know, was, was fairly well talked about and, uh, and, you know, it's kind of, kind of was everywhere. And I think that that has helped a ton of people uh, who wrote for the game get more work uh, in the future and, and helped with a lot of careers, which I'm super, super happy for. Uh, especially, you know, given that I was I was trying to find and elevate like your more marginal voices, you know, I mean, there aren't really there's no uh, straight white males writing for the the main characters, uh, you know, of the game. Um, and that's, I think, a powerful, a powerful thing. Um, and it, it I, someone else used this metaphor to me, but I really liked it. Um, it was they said, like, essentially you're you're building the stage and letting other people stand on it you know sort of thing and that you know stroked my ego in exactly the right way so i uh, <laughs> decided to borrow it but yeah you know that's i think that's a really fantastic thing to be able to do as a as a game creator is is build that place where people can then uh, show their showcase their talents you know it also means less work for me cuz i just have to find all these incredible talented <laughs> yeah. people and uh, and let them go nuts <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, and it and it's important, you know, with the contemporary conversation of like, hey, games aren't just made by one person, right? Like, it's a team of contributors. So, um, we need to move away from like the 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 genius that gives demands or gives you know communicates their genius to the to the workers and they go and and fulfill it or like the auteur that's you know the the this game is their brainchild and and no one else can touch it or no one else can stake a claim on it um obviously that's a big conversation with both workers rights and and everything else that's happening in games right now um another thing i feel like it's interesting because i mean obviously we're, we're passing around names that are they're pretty well known like gita jackson or lee alexander or austin walker and i think it, there's also like this interesting, you know, game dev folklore that exists. Like obviously, like these are these are people that are they're popular in their own fields, and I think it's interesting, kind of looking at the 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 DNA of where the water tastes like wine, and then going a step back, like you know, your contributions to uh, Gone Home. So you were the sole programmer on it is that what you told me yeah that's right so there were uh three of us who quit our job and went up to to portland initially to make that and founded fulbright that was steve carla and i um and then uh, we brought on kate but yeah i was the only programmer on that um so yeah <laughs> and your previous gig was at 2k marin right yeah that's right uh, i was working on uh bioshock bioshock 2 and uh, the Bureau XCOM Declassified at, ah, at 2K okay. Marin. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that was a 2K Marin joint. It was originally 2K Australia, and then 2K Marin got brought onto it for reasons. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's a it's a long sordid story that eventually killed the studio. So we don't need to go into it now. But yeah. sure, but There's it's interesting with with the um with the DNA there, right? Like I'm sure you saw, what was it? Uh, Fork Parker's tweet a couple months ago that was like, do you know that 30% of all indie games are made by someone that worked on Bioshock? And it's, I feel like especially like the, the 2K Marin, you know, going into like video game folklore, I feel like the 2K Marin like team 
kind of like disseminated and then like never discussed where they came from right <laughs> like obviously like the the gone home team talks about how like yeah these are people that worked on like specifically minerva's den and, and minerva's den is highly praised um but it's interesting so i'm like still not clear of like hey who was there and like who witnessed this thing and, and where did they go off to yeah i think it's really like oh gosh if you look at the the indie games that have come out of the people who left that studio uh it's just mind-boggling and it really highlights for me again you know not to sound bitter or anything but how what a huge waste the death of that (laughs) studio was because all of these talented people came out of it you know they made some really spectacular spectacular stuff and uh yeah and you can even extend that to like irrational um and i don't know how much cross-pollination there is between the 2k marine team and, and irrational obviously you guys worked on uh the same projects but uh, like when Irrational shut down and there was, uh, what, the Molasses Flood yeah, uh, and a couple other studios. I think, um, are the We Happy Few devs, are there people from Irrational on that? I can't remember. I, uh, maybe I can't remember either. I'm I'm probably bad for not knowing that. But yeah, there's a Perception. There's a, a few, there's a bunch of other highly uh, regarded games that came out of Irrational also after it shut down. Yeah. It yeah. was it was a good group of people. Turns out, <laughs> turns out like these are some talented people that made these you know very seminal games. Um, but I I think that's super interesting and like you know like you said it's like maybe it was a waste maybe it wasn't but like obviously we wouldn't get the games that exist now if those studios were still around. Um, there wouldn't be the kind of incentivization to go out and try their own thing. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you know maybe it would have been a bigger waste if the studio hadn't shut down and all of those uh, amazing independent games had never like seen the light of day because uh, people were working on I don't know whatever 2k IPs they were they were going to do sure and also for like Campo Santo like would I mean a firewatch wouldn't exist if you know those guys didn't leave telltale and their other respective jobs and and yeah, try yeah. working on that actually uh one of the uh firewatch devs was also 2k Marin alumni so Oh, okay. There, we're we're everywhere. <laughs> oh God, they they in my house. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really cool, and that contributes to like it, you know, games own type of folklore and 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 greater tapestry of like all these people are contributing, and they go off and they they disappear for a while, and they come back, um, and they work on something, and you don't realize it till till way later. And I just think it's a it's a cool thing, and it's a shame that, uh we lose people sometimes whether it's due to you know the the work hours or harassment or you know uh the stress of just the general stresses of of doing this job whether you're doing it independently or or in a larger studio yeah absolutely um to that point not to make it too depressing and dour um i think your uh postmortem uh, for where the water tastes like wine got a lot of attention uh, when it first came out. I mean, you said as much because you put a little update afterwards because uh, I reread it today. Um, and I feel like that was so like in games, it's weird, right? Because like either platform holders or other sort of stakeholders kind of like restrict developers from talking about very specific you know sales figures and that's where you know systems like steam spy can come up and maybe sometimes you know uh spread misinformation in a super unhealthy way if people don't use it correctly uh but i think 
I think it, what you wrote there, and obviously the entire postmortem wasn't just about like, hey, the game didn't sell well, but it was it, there was a lot of other stuff, and we just discussed it just a second ago about how like, hey, we did this thing where it's this all of these vignettes and all of these separate artists and writers contributing and having all these sh- different short stories coming together. But I feel like having someone willing to come out and say like, hey, this game didn't sell well and not can't discuss specific sales figures, but like here's a kind of rough estimate of how not well it sold. Um, and so what what kind of made you write th- write that and feel like the need to kind of get that information out? Yeah, I mean, um, there were there were a few things. Um, I had always intended to write a postmortem for the game, uh, regardless of what happened with it uh, afterwards, because uh, as a game developer, um, sort of from the beginning, even before I was you know graduated college or anything like that, I was reading the postmortems in in Game Developer Magazine. Um, and really learning a lot from them, I felt like. Um, and that tradition has, has died off uh, a little bit in the recent years. Um, Game Developer Magazine is dead, for one thing. Um, and I think that, like, as you said, you know, there's... Uh, people don't always like to talk about things, um, <laughs> even in the sort of, like, very safe space of a postmortem. Um, and actually, though, you know, I think... Like when they were published in Game Developer Magazine, like that's a relatively safe thing because no players are ever going to read that and see like, oh, this is, you know, what and, you know, what would they do? Like write angry letters to the editor of the magazine or something like that. I don't know. But these days, like that would get published on the Internet and then a billion people would suddenly be sending death threats to any female members of the dev team they could find or whatever. Right. And so it's just a lot harder to be open about that sort of thing these days uh in addition to companies are always just very close to the chest about about their their things um so you know i i wanted to address that because um i i wanted other developers to be able to learn from everything we did on the game uh both like you know i mean the financial stuff was maybe one or two paragraphs at the very end and that's the part that everyone's uh <laughs> everyone gets excited to. about yeah, yeah but um but you know we i i talked about the things that we did well um and that we did poorly uh in the hopes that someone else looking at making a game could read that and and hopefully come away with like oh, maybe I should think about this before I start, not make this mistake. I'm going to make a totally new mistake, you know, or whatever. Or, oh, this went well for them. Let's, maybe we can try and replicate that, you know. Um, So that sort of stuff was out there as well. Um, I also think that, uh, I mean, part of it was also, um, at the time and even now, I think there's a, a lot of discussion going on about indie success and what that means and what that looks like and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the indie apocalypse. Like, is that is that a real thing? Um, what does that what does that mean for independent games creators? What does it mean for fans? You know, all of that. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to address that also, and and say like, okay, well, here's uh, here's something that wasn't successful, and I think it's 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 important to, to have narratives out there that are. Uh, not that are from other perspectives than, Hey, we are all millionaires now, you know, sort of thing. Um, because that you end up with a lot of survivor bias sort of thing, survivorship bias, uh, in, in this. And if you're a new creator or, or anyone really a fan or anyone just looking at the industry and all you get to read are these like 
this is how I bought everyone I know a new house, you yeah. know, sort of. Like I made articles. it, I made it, I made it. Yeah, then then you get a skewed perspective of what the games world is really like. Um, and so I think that's that that was important for uh that discussion as well. Um to have that out there, you know, to have these these sort of narratives of as much as this might look like we're all buying Porsches from the outside, like maybe that's not what's actually true, you know, and you should, you should, you know, think about this. Um, And I also think like, as I said in the update that, you know, I do consider whether water tastes like wine a success. It's not a financial success, but I'm really, really happy that it was made. Um, I think it's, you know, done what I set out to do, you know, and from the beginning of making this game, my idea was that I just wanted to like, if I got one shot at making a game that this was the one I wanted to make. And so I was going to be happy no matter as long as it got made, if I managed to finish it, that, that would, that was, that counts as success in my books. So. And you talked about how it was a four year development cycle. And it was an interesting thing of like, you know, you look at other people that don't even have the, 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 the experience that you've had, you know, coming into this game and they're like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to make this game. And she's, I guess just got to work through it no matter how long it's going to take. I know like, um, was it Ben Porter just put out his game? Was it Moon Quest? Um, and like that was, I think he said it was like six years or something, maybe even longer. Or you think of the Gorgoa dev. He worked on that game for what seemed like ever or the Iconoclast dev. And for some of them, it's like that was their first like large like commercial project. And like they, so they don't even have the, the, the hindsight of like, okay, this is what we did wrong in the last project. It was like, oh, I'm coming from AAA and dealing with that. Um, or, you know, taking those experiences and understanding what a develop a full development cycle looks like. And I f- feel like not having those properly set expectations does kind of make the stress like even greater, right? Because like they don't, you know, unless you're like kind of well established and on good footing, like immen- uh, mentally and emotionally at the beginning, it's like, okay, this might not sell at all because of how that's how games work. And there it's a, it's a, uh, hit-driven business, and I have to be okay with that. Like, but if you're spending, you know, years and years of your life, and but with the expectations, like, okay, well, this has to make money because if it doesn't, then like, what I spend all this time on. But like, you're coming from the experience of like, well, sometimes that just happens, and sometimes that's you know, when you have to be happy with the end product, even if the end product didn't, you know, derive, you know, profit for yourself personally. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a important lesson to to look at if you're a developer thinking about this you know even if you're a established developer you know who's who's had success in the past uh or if you're a new developer i mean looking at the possible range of of things that might happen and planning for all of that and just going into it again with eyes wide open you know um and and saying this this could go like this or this could go badly you know um and having a plan B for that or a plan C or, you know, however many plans it takes to to make it so you don't lose your house or whatever. <laughs> right, right. And to that effect, so like you also said in there, like how you, um, I don't know if this decision was established beforehand or not, but like you, you moved out of the Bay Area and you're now in Santa Fe um, to obviously like uh, you were telling me at the Smithsonian, like because you have family out there and um, but also because obviously it's a lower cost of living and it's this like to me it's it's um, fascinating like so i i went to gdc this year and that was my first time on the west coast first time in the bay area and like to me it's kind of like why does anyone live here like 
even if you're AAA, and like, um, and I'm not trying to, to talk smack about like people that you know want to work for Ubisoft or any of the other developers in the Bay Area, but it seems like it's you're you're kind of burning the candle at both ends, right? Because it's like you, you maybe not be supporting yourself entirely financially like all your money's going towards you know rent because of the ridiculous housing costs and then also like you're working a very stressful job a job with a lot of hours and all this other stuff yeah definitely uh i mean i think the 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 metaphor that i used uh a few times was like living in san francisco feels like you're on a treadmill and you just have to keep running or else uh you're gonna get spit out the back end you know and that's a really stressful feeling to have um, but I, I moved to the Bay Area in uh, early 2000s um, for the first time. And I mean, it, it, it was different then too uh, from everything, but it was, it was a very, I don't know, when I, when I moved there, there were still artists living in warehouses in parts of San Francisco who were throwing giant parties or just had, you know, like weird shit all over the place because <laughs> they uh, could, could live in a warehouse and do that. And, you know, that was a thing. And, and San Francisco was very much an artist city, um, where people were doing new and exciting cutting edge stuff. Um, and it, it was a place that really felt like you could come up with new ideas and do really cool stuff and all of that, you know, um, and it's changed a lot since then. And if you went to GDC, you saw basically the worst part of San Francisco. Like yeah. that area around Moscone is is awful. Like not only is it uh, just not – it doesn't have a lot of character. Uh, it's sort of – you get on one hand the super tech bro sort of stuff. And on the other, you get the, the, the kind of homeless population uh, congregating there. Um, and so you see like the, the worst of the city uh, from that slice but it has changed a lot like since the since the great days of san francisco i think like it's lost a lot of its character it's uh become a place that doesn't have what i moved there for anymore you know or it's it's rapidly draining out you know all the artists moved to the east bay first and now they're moving out of the bay area entirely because it's just it's too expensive. You can't do it anymore. So where do they go from there? Do they just leave California in general? Or do they just keep going east to go up to Sacramento? Like where where do they go? You know, I don't know. Um, at least some of them are out here in Santa Fe. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I don't know. This is the Far East Bay, I guess. Uh, yeah, people know. <laughs> people go all sorts of all sorts of places. They do they do different things. I yeah, I don't know where they're all going to end up. It's a little sad though. It's very sad. It's interesting. It's interesting that you said that's the worst part of uh, San Francisco, and also your mention of like all these warehouse parties because I recently had uh, Anya Combs, uh, who does the outreach at Kickstarter for games, and she's from San Jose, is where she grew up. Uh, she lives in New York now, but she was telling me about how like yeah, when I grew up, like before the Bay Area became like super techy and gentrified, like I would go to like punk rock shows that were just like in abandoned warehouses and stuff. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, but also like, so I did Train Jam this year. So it was my first time in Chicago and then my first time in San Francisco. And so I went from downtown Chicago to downtown San Francisco and I looked at both and I was like, I cannot tell a difference. Like I <laughs> straight up can't tell the difference. Obviously the architecture is different and there, there, there are differences, but like walking around the, the just the feeling you get is just kind of so homogenized between those two areas. And my, I stay with my buddy who lives in Russian Hill. Um, and that was like a nice, a nice area. Like it's like, you know, row houses and like hilly streets and stuff. And you can look out into the bay and I'm like, Oh, okay. This is like 
this is just San Francisco you see in the in the movies and whatnot. Like, okay, I understand now. But, you know, I've spent the first like 20 years of my life living in the suburbs in Virginia and then I moved up to Richmond and Richmond's a city of 250,000 people. Uh, and I can drive from where I live now in the fan, which is like the big neighborhood down to where I work in downtown, like financial district, your government center. And it's three miles. <laughs> it's 15 minutes. And that's like the, in- that's like one full, like third of the entire city. And, but, and everything else is still kind of like lesser. So a city and more so suburbia and stuff. And it's this, so going to bigger cities, you know, kind of all wide eyed and be like, Oh wow, big city. And then you see a lot of them like back to back to back and you're like, wait a second, wait a second. There's some like urban planners or something that were like traded around. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's really too bad. I, I feel like cities used to have more individuality, more character, things like that. Um, the actually, uh, the character Rose in, in where the water tastes like wine, she's the character that I wrote. Um, and she talks, that's kind of her whole thing is uh, not entirely. It's, it's uh, a, a bit more, but she talks about um, going to San Francisco and seeing it at a different uh, kind of transitional point. You know, she, uh, she goes there right after the, the summer of love and this, this city that she was promised, you know, the, the hippie Mecca is changing, you know, it's, it's not that anymore. It's, it's moved on to other things. And, uh, I don't know. I feel like that's always a thing that's happening is that, that, uh, places as they become more homogenized, they lose that, that special spark of what drew people there in the first place of what kind of made the city, what it was, you know, what it's, it's name. I mean, people think of San Francisco and they still think of, you know, wearing flowers in your hair or whatever sort of thing, uh, to some degree. And that's entirely gone. I mean, that was gone before I moved in long before. Um, but yeah, it's still, still part of the mythos uh but the actuality is a little different unfortunately yeah when i um uh i stayed the extra weekend after gdc with my buddy and we were just like went through the mission a little bit and went to like golden gate park and explored the city a little bit more and there's a part where we took uh a muni bus through like down hate street and like there's like a couple of blocks of hate street where it's like all right here's a bunch of grateful dead stuff like murals and stuff and everyone's got a grateful dead bumper sticker dancing bears whatever um and i looked at it i'm like oh that's cool it's like there's still some of it and then you have to like pause for a second be like wait a second has this not just become like completely like commodified and like commercialized where it's like yeah we're the hateful dead headquarters you know come come eat some cherry garcia with us (laughs) yeah i mean like the the stores along hate street are very much like that like it is all just it's essentially it's a retail stop now you know you you go and you find not even all that interesting of stores i mean there's some head shops and stuff like that uh that'll sell you your your bumper stickers or whatever um but it's mostly just like I don't know uh, chain retail stuff or high end clothing or uh, interior decorating stuff or whatever. Like it's just a shopping place essentially. But the cool thing actually about the hate the one the one thing that is like still clinging on uh, with sheer desperation is that uh, it's still a pilgrimage spot, and so uh, a lot of kids or you know young people, just all sorts of people from all over the country, still come there. Uh, to see the the Grateful Dead house, to like sleep on the street, to you know 
just to have that experience, you know, sleep in the, the park, do that whole thing, um, the hate street thing. And they are honestly the, the biggest amount of character that that area has left. Uh, of course, all the merchants association and the neighbors, you know, who have recently moved in and all that, they want to kick out the street kids, but like they're, they're the one remaining sliver of life that, that, uh, that old hate has left in it. So trading around their, their grateful dead bootlegs being like, I listened to them when they were the warlocks. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if any of those folks are left, <laughs> but actually, you know, um, when, uh, when people who are part of that community, like old, old hippies or, you know, members of the Grateful Dead or uh, not, you know, the, the wider Grateful Dead family or anything like that. Right. Uh, if, if they die or anything, there's a, a big memorial and, and uh, kind of like impromptu street party uh, vigils. People put, there's one particular street corner where people put offerings or, you know, put up signs and paint the sidewalk and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you can kind of see that the community like still lasts from, from those, from those days, you know, uh, which is pretty spectacular. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that, 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 that's a shame seeing that. And it's also a shame, like other smaller cities trying to race towards that. And I'm, I'm okay with like people like wanting to have more like tech innovation in their, in their cities. Like, you know, we just got a new bus system here in Richmond and it's all, you know, got Wi-Fi in the buses and there's, you, you know, you scan a QR code to, get your bus pass and like that that's fine but like there's a difference between that and just racing towards like the kind of unsustainable kind of wealth and and housing costs and it's like everyone racing for the amazon headquarters too it's like this isn't this isn't something you want like you might think you want it but you don't right you know and i i mean i don't know i have like i definitely can look at cities you know struggling cities and and see that like I understand why you why you think you want this, why you want this source of jobs and seemingly infinite money and all that sort of stuff. But if you look at San Francisco or Seattle or some of the other cities that have kind of been hit by the tech boom, you can see that it's like it's not at all evenly distributed. You know, it's it's a, something that that comes in and changes a place and does certain things to it, but doesn't really help the people who live there necessarily you know it helps some of them yeah but it's it's a tough thing um the people that had the upward mobility beforehand like helps them tremendously but those that didn't right exactly yeah if you already own a house there then you're probably going to be super happy about that and if you're you know renting and you know a school teacher or something like that it's it's gonna be the worst thing in the world yeah i it's rich richmond's character is interesting um, from a historical city because obviously it's a very old city but it was also completely leveled during the civil war <laughs> so like it has a grid system you know a grid street uh, gridded street system because they were like oh we got to rebuild the city let's use like modern you know urban planning to do it um so it's like both a very old city and at the same time a very young city or relatively young like you know obviously later half of the 19th century young um, yeah but yeah um, but that's, that's, that's super, I, I love the game because I love where the water tastes like wine just cause like it, it, it hits an interesting point. It hits an interesting kind of, uh, tone and, and style of story that, you know, you just don't, you don't see a lot with games and obviously that was, that was your intention, but I, it's, it's great seeing that 
and like trying to ignore like the but where's the gameplay like where's the you know platforming and stuff and obviously we don't need to get into like silly like straw man arguments about like hey stop looking at things just as gameplay but it's you both see a lot of experimentation in games and then you don't right so like you know obviously i have a lot of fan a lot of friends that are big itch fans and they try out all these games on itch and i i love those games and i love seeing everyone's little experiments and and you kind of touched about this on the postmortem but i'm like but those ideas are like you, we're going to see those ideas in games in like maybe like in five to ten years, right? Because some developer is going to play that game and then they're going to internalize that idea and then they're going to put it in theirs and that game is going to be a, a huge success. But I, I would love those games to kind of hit a wider audience and, and, and touch more people and show like games can be, you know, more than what you think they are. And I feel like a lot of games have, have done that that are commercially successful, obviously like gone home or fire watcher or her story. Like her story is very like against the grain, uh, for a video game. And hopefully we just see more of that. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that people are out there experimenting with this stuff. I do think that like games systemically has a little bit of a problem because it is so hard to continue making those, those kind of weird experiment games you know um i the the a lot of the stuff on itch is made by people who uh aren't doing it for commercial reasons you know um and that's fantastic like that's amazing right but that also somewhat limits the type of game you can make uh, along those lines right you kind of have to do a short exploration of a of a small idea um and and execute on it to uh, only a certain level before you toss it out in the world and say like, okay, well, you know, here's my, here's my hobby project for the last six months or whatever sort of thing, you know? Um, and that's, that's amazing. And I'm glad people are doing that. Um, but I would like to see more of a chance for people to, I mean, a earn a living, you know, doing, uh, what doing that sort of thing, like doing that very valuable work, uh, and B, um, I'd like to see those ideas be able to, be bigger and uh, more polished and, you know, have all sorts of the kind of support that we give to AAA games, you know, behind them. Um, because I think that games as a medium really needs that, that kind of fresh blood to survive. Right. And AAA places are getting more and more risk averse as uh, it gets harder and harder for them to survive too. You know, and I, I understand that, but it's also like, you're not seeing, a lot of innovation come out of there. And if we're not careful, we're going to end up in this painting ourselves into this corner where games can only be what we sell, you know, at the multi-million dollar level, um, because that's what people see. We're already there to an extent, right? I mean, if you just go up to a random person on public transit around the street corner or whatever and say video games, (laughs) like the things they're going to think of, right, exactly. They're going to think of like, shooters they're gonna think of Fortnite. they're gonna think of call of duty they're gonna think of you know i don't know assassin's creed stuff like that um and those are you know those are fine games but it would be nice if if there was more in the conversation right uh because you know if you go up to people and, and say movies you know uh sure they're probably gonna think of i don't know avengers or something first but they're also going to have in the back of their mind you know uh the Godfather, the Graduate, you know, uh, uh, Casablanca, like that. Yeah. Um, Casablanca, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, uh, 
other things and they know that they know what the space of movies can be even if they don't go watch those movies themselves they know that there's people out there making you know the 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 weird films that are only shown at festivals or you know whatever sort of stuff um and games people don't know that uh i think they don't they don't realize a lot of times when i have conversations about where the water tastes like wine with folks who are outside of games, um, they kind of, you know, they're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that in a video game. I didn't know that video games could do that. Uh, and they get really interested in it. And I think that's, it's a shame that we don't see more of that, I guess. And so, I mean, obviously it has to come from kind of two different places, right? Like it either comes from like the AAA studios taking a chance on doing some more experimental stuff, like e- experimental, like outside the range of like what the golden child indie games are like. I'm sure EA considers Unravel a <laughs> taking a chance on that, but it's like, it's still, it's, it's a puzzle platformer, not to discount all the great work that goes into it, but like it, it can, it can be fit into kind of a, a, a pre-existing bucket. Um, but they need to take more, you know, chances on games like her story or games, you know, very experimental, experimental games. Um, or alternatively, which is kind of what I wish is what I would prefer to happen is I would prefer the the indie studios and the experimental guys to become more punch up, like start start growing. And obviously, that's a hard thing to do, like financially and as as a as a business. But my all my inklings were like I felt like the the games industry. So you had this kind of this um, fracturing. So like it, you know, indie games got or you know, the game space got really big and there's like a bunch of, you know, small indie studios popping up and the average person per studio went from like 40 in like 2005 to like two per studio, like in 2012. Um, and what I wanted to kind of see is a kind of a, uh, kind of a back to kind of like a, a constriction where like, you know, indie studios starting like, Hey, let's merge or Hey, let's, you know, acquire one another because our skill sets meet each other and stuff. And obviously like, that's that that might be a bit of a of a, a crazy thing to expect because obviously you left a big studio or for for multiple different reasons but also like you went out to try to, to pursue your own idea um but i saw like a lot of the like quote unquote bigger financially bigger uh indie studios for like a, a super giant or a campo santo or like a no uh, a hello games it's like hey those those could grow you know if if they lay the groundwork in a certain way and they could grow and facilitate more experimental ideas and make that more part of the the larger game mythos um which is why i both kind of got kind of sad and also excited when campo santo was acquired by valve or those guys went and joined valve because like hey they could take their ideas and maybe disseminate them throughout valve or they're going to be kind of put in a box and and they're going to work on their games, but those games aren't going to kind of reach to permeate the, the rest of the, the membrane of, of valve. But I mean, we, we have yet to see what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those, those folks are all friends of mine. Uh, so I, I really hope that they, uh, succeed and that you know they get they get the larger platform to stand on and and shout their games to the world uh from um but yeah i i don't know i think the consolidation and the kind of growing will happen uh and i don't know whether it'll be a good or bad thing honestly for for games as a whole because it does give 
people larger platforms. Uh, on the other hand, it, it kind of reduces the number of voices out there uh, at the same time. Um, and the the fact of the matter is, is that games is a rough place right now financially for anyone. Like even the AAA studios are struggling. Um, and I don't know exactly. I, I wish I knew how to fix the problem uh, that that is happening right now. And I don't, I don't know it. Some people say it's, just a cycle that, you know, uh, there's going to be this period of contraction and then eventually we'll see another bigger explosion. And I hope that's true. Um, I don't know whether like Valve changing Steam policies or another marketplace coming up uh, to be a competitor or any of that sort of stuff would, would help. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure what's going to, what's going to help us. Um, but I do, I do think that there are, there's kind of a, divergent path here where we could be movies or, or some other medium like that, or we could, you know, be comic books in the nineties or whatever. And I think, you know, comics are kind of finally seeing this resurgence of experimentation and, and new voices and, you know, people being willing to give stuff a shot. And I actually shouldn't be talking about this at all because I don't really follow comics and I don't know a whole lot about it. But I do know that, you know, there was a long period of time there where it sort of became a very, very niche media and and everyone was um, doing the same sort of stuff. There wasn't a lot of experimentation and it meant that in the wider culture as a whole, it was kind of uh, pigeonholed as being for a particular kind of person and not something that, you know, people as a whole would, would engage with, you know, um, I hope that video games don't, I I think we have a choice between being that or being something more. And, uh, I, I hope we, we can navigate that. Yeah. I recently had, uh, uh, Brian Clevenger on and he, uh, is the writer, one of the co-creators on Atomic Robo, which is a comic. And then back in the day, he wrote 8-Bit Theater, which was that Final Fantasy 1 webcomic. Um, and we were talking, you know, and I followed webcomics for a long time when I was younger. And I kind of learned a lot of business acumen from them. But I feel like comics got their resurgence and more independent creators and more unique voices when the internet became more widely accessible. Kind of the same thing with games, obviously, like, Indie games couldn't exist if not for digital distribution platforms. But um, I feel like for games, the one of the things I think we need to do is we need to stem the tide of the devaluation of games. Like, you know, I, I love buying games on sale too, as much as anyone else, but I know how much it, it hinders. And I got to applaud Sean Murray and his team for never discounting no man's sky because like they know the value of their game and and if they were to discount it like that how much more would that add to the narrative of like oh the low quality of no man's sky and oh it'll never be a good game etc etc yeah absolutely i mean i think that's that's such a tricky one right because it's uh, like i don't want to i also buy games you know on sale like and there's certain games that i'm like oh i'm i can't can't afford that right now or whatever you know and i don't want to take away games from people who can't uh can't afford them um but at the same time yeah you're right that when when games are stuffed into humble bundles or when there's always a steam sale around the corner it really does devalue that especially because like you know even charging twenty dollars for an indie game is seen as like oh wow (laughs) you know that's 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 expensive you know and that's 
uh, if you look at the amount of work that it takes to make one of these games, like, no, right. it isn't, you know? And I mean, if, if players continue to see that as being too expensive, uh, we're just not going to see that kind of game anymore because they can't be, they can't afford to be made for what people are willing to pay for them. Um, and that, that would be a shame if that, if that market collapsed because of that. Yeah, exactly. And it's just this, this weird kind of formula people have in their heads of like, you know, obviously the, the time versus the price equation keeps cropping up, but also things like, I'm sure a lot of people try to compare it to like the cost of a film, t- uh, movie ticket or cost of a DVD or cost of a book. It's like, Hey, these are like, you know, 10, $20 purchases. Like these are relatively cheaper than the average cost of games. It's like, yeah, but like, now let's look at the time versus price <laughs> equation. Like, you know, you're, you're paying $10 for a two hour experience that you can only have once if it's a, if it's a, if it's a movie. Um, and I just, again, I think it's kind of about kind of customer education, however we can do it, whether it's, uh, not putting our games on sale or educating people more about the development process. Cause obviously some, a lot of people are still in the dark about like what goes into making a game and like how many people contribute towards making a game. Um, and how cost prohibitive it can be. But yeah, I feel like it's that. And that's difficult because like you're trying to reach, it should be on the job of maybe the platform holders to do that sort of education because they have the the facilities to do that, not on the individual creator, but. Yeah. And I mean, I think they also have uh, a reason to want to do that. It's It's really hard for an individual creator to say, you know, I'm not going to put my game on sale because sometimes you know with with the way the game market is like that's the only way you can hope to make any money off of the thing you've created is is to follow that that trend um but the platform holders if that continues and games st- keep getting devalued like they're going to keep taking a cut but it's going to be a smaller and smaller pie you know and i think that valve should really be looking at this and getting concerned about where the the price trend of games is going and whether they will you know continue to be a viable business uh for creators because like a valve makes less and less money if games cost less but also if people can't afford to make games anymore for their platform then there's going to be a huge die-off and what will valve sell then you know i i I don't know um so i think that it would be it would behoove these the platform holders to take a look at that and and do what they can to educate consumers and you know try and get some kind of pricing uh, strategies and and sort of um, standards across the board. But I don't know. But that would require Valve to actually do something on Steam, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Which <laughs> we know that they are loath to do. Yeah, Ugh. still waiting on that uh, curation team whenever they get <laughs> yeah. hired. They exist somewhere out there. I think they're just like in like a separate like warehouse that they just, the, the phone lines cut or something. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right, Yanaman. Um, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to talk to before we, before we start wrapping up anything, a burning desire deep down <laughs> no, in there? I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, I, I should probably, uh, plug the the game a little bit more it's where the water tastes like wine and you can go to where the water tastes like wine.com or search for it on steam if you want to check it out um and yeah that's that's all i got <laughs> awesome and also if anyone wants to listen to any of our other podcasts you can find them at ward-games.com or we're on twitter at ward video games or you can search for them on your podcast app of choice just search for wardcast 
I appreciate uh, you coming on very much so because I like I said I'm a big fan of your previous work and I'm a big fan of of this game and I'm I'm so glad I got to come to the Smithsonian and try it out and, and talk to you about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks again, Yanman. <laughs>